Hello, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming all the way from Calgary. Thanks for having us. <laughs> my question is probably mainly to Heather. Is there any evidence that compulsory voting would make tend to make people more educated in terms of knowing who they might be voting for? And uh, second question is, uh, how do you, do you see any changes coming uh, based upon the fact that uh, whoever gets voted in, unless it's a minority government, they won't want to change uh, the way things are going? Thanks. Yeah, great questions and, and nice to be co-organizing this with you. Thanks for all your help. Okay, so the first one, is there evidence that people are become better informed under a compulsory voting system? It's, it doesn't seem to be very conclusive, but they think so. They think that in Australia, for example, people do tend to pay more attention because they know they're going to have to go out and vote. But you still find, they think, some evidence of the donkey vote phenomena, and you do certainly still have people who are remain uninterested and come out to vote now because the system's compulsory. But there is some evidence that does make somewhat of a difference. Then the second question is there a move to consider compulsory voting either sort of by the province or federally or other provinces? Is that no, not that we've heard. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of response. We did hear from the Alberta Elections Commissioner when we did some earlier work in the spring around compulsory voting in Calgary. And they were interested in what we were doing and following some of the discussion and what was said at the public event. But in terms of sort of picking it up and moving forward, no. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Thank you both for your presentations. Uh, do you think that were the election rules changed so that there was a provision on the ballot to tick none of the above, that would increase voter turnout? I mean, I fall into that category. But do, you, but do you mean where it isn't mandatory, but that's just on the ballot for no, voluntary You want voting? to exercise your franchise. You want to go along and vote but you're not going to vote for any of the candidates on the ballot. But you, want, you do not want to be a dropout, not fulfill your civic duty. And if you do believe that it would, inter, uh, that it would increase voter turnout, what would be required to change the election rules? So what I've read about the places that have compulsory vote in... Latin America and Asia, for example, it's not common to have the none of the above option, but in the Western democracies it is. So virtually all the Western democracies have that on there so that people can check none of the above. So it's, it's a likely feature if it were to be considered in Canada. In Canada, the election laws are the compulsory vote would presumably be covered under the election laws. Uh, the federal election laws and the provincial election laws, for example. It could be included in that, but there could also be then a constitutional challenge based on our charter right uh, to vote, which is a right rather than an obligation. I mean, I'm not sure that uh, having none of the above, for one thing, you can spoil your ballot. You can check off every name uh, as a method of sort of indicating your displeasure with the choices, uh, to put it that way. But I'm not sure that having, at least under a voluntary system, I'm not sure that having none of the above option 
would get people out to vote. For one reason being, I mean, you might be someone who follows politics as an in, and is interested and perhaps wants to voice your displeasure in that way. But the people that we're trying to catch in the compulsory voting net, namely the 35 and unders, the poor and marginalized and so on, are they going to jump up and run to the polls because none of the above is now on there? I don't think so. If it were compulsory uh, and none of the above or to put it another way, if voting were to be compulsory in Canada, to which I'm opposed, but if it were, I would want to have none of the above as a kind of safety valve so that at a minimum you can uh, not get your $20 fine, but you can check off none of the above if, in fact, that's your view. Well, I'm opposed to compulsory voting for the reasons that you've articulated. But how do you, if you don't have that provision on the ballot, how do you communicate to the leadership of the province and the country that you're, not, you're dissatisfied with um, those on the ballot, yet you, you want to do your civic duty, but you're certainly not going to vote for those on the ballot. Yeah, you know, I actually think it's a pretty interesting proposal. I wouldn't mind to see it added and then find out what happens. We'll talk afterwards. Thank you. <laughs> But and just one more point. Again, you know, you could again check off all of them or spoil it or scribble on it or whatever. But but I also think, uh, although this is an event about compulsory voting, and that's obviously what we're concerned about here. But I think sometimes when we talk about democracy, we get too hung up on voting, by which I don't mean that we shouldn't vote. I think we all should vote, as I say, early and often. But but. but I think there's all kinds of other sort of civil society responses, you know, whether that's joining a different party and or whether that's writing letters to the editor or trying to get an op-ed in the paper or going out and going to a protest or coming to an event like this and engaging uh, in, in debate about the importance of our democracy and the importance of voting and all those kinds of things. So I think uh, there are lots of – there are also lots of other ways uh, to voice one's displeasure with, with a government or with the current political scene. Uh, thank you again. My name is Frank Toth. I've got to get my word in one way or the other. Usually. But anyway, uh, the speeches in my mind were not complete. You didn't tell us as examples of three or four countries where they had pro- proportionate voting or just the same old decrepit voting that we do. We have the American system. The more money you got, buddy, the more you're going to get in. Our, our federal government is a great example. We're represented around the world by a young fellow who's the son of the largest corporation in the world. Our prime minister is the son of imperial oil executive. And you can see it in our own elections locally. We had 10-foot signs, and there were little signs, and you saw some advertising. We've got relegated to an election system. Like in America, they say, you're not very smart, you're not a millionaire. The more money you got you can collect, the more chances you're going to promote yourself, advertise. But you didn't tell us uh, those countries that you, you talked about where they had the good old decrepit election system as ours, or is, was it a, was it a uh, what do you call it? Proportional. A proportionate way. Okay? Thank you. So I think you've just made an argument in favor of reforming campaign finance, and uh, there are there is no sort of link necessarily between campaign finance and the compulsory vote. But that argument's often made just generally when you're concerned around um, a cleaner election system, for example. So related to the idea of proportional representation, there are countries that have proportional representation. Some of those would have compulsory voting and some not. You tend to see it more in Europe. 
You did see Australia, who's had they've had a compulsory voting system in place now for, I mean, across the whole country for 90 years, and they were able to implement the, the sort of the preferential voting system, which is a form of a, a mixed style of vote. So they were, it is tougher, though. Dan made the argument earlier that if you have a compulsory vote, it might lower demand or mask the need for a shift to proportional representation. For sure, that gets raised, and that's a very legitimate concern. It's not impossible to do, as Australia shows, but it's likely a bit more challenging. Thank you both for your presentation, and uh, I would like to direct my question to you, Heather. Uh, I would preface, uh, I'm Ruth Alzinga. I have actually been on both sides of the ballot, you might say. I've uh, run, I have been a school trustee and a city councillor. Now, when I first, uh, I should say alderman, that was the word we used, but <laughs> um, the question I have to you is you mentioned in your opening comments that there's a social bias in voting. And I, I, I believe there, there is. And I guess my question to you would be, do you feel there isn't enough education at, the, at every level about the privilege of voting. And I know one of my first little campaign slogans when I ran for, for uh, trustee was, voting is a privilege, respect it, use it. And I mean, that was just a little snippet in the newspaper but inserted by my campaign. But I do think that people don't cherish that, and you, you, we all know that. But where does it start? Parents are going to educate their children, but should there be more in the school system uh, relative to, to voting? You know, that one comes up quite a bit in terms of dealing with voter turnout. It's very interesting. The, there, there is a move to talk about lowering the voting age to 16. Why? So that people are still in high school during the first vote, and then there's sort of the social pressure and the school organization behind getting them out to vote. It's pretty controversial, but it's been put forward as a possible option for dealing with low voter turnout and specifically targeting young people. So um, Lisa Young spoke about the difference it makes if you go out to vote for your very first vote that you're eligible for after you turn 18. The evidence shows you're far more likely to continue the pattern. It's sort of habit forming. So there is some basis for that, but that's a pretty big sort of values discussion for us to have, I would say. And I would certainly support any uh, efforts to, you know, get young people interested in and involved in and thinking about politics. I'm not sure what they do uh, in high school nowadays, but I remember when I was in high school, there was a federal election uh, at that time. And so in our social studies class, we had, uh, we had to follow the election as part of our assignment, and we had a mock vote and so on in school. Of course, we weren't able to vote uh, yet if we were under 18 at that point. But... Uh, um, I mean, anything that gets people interested in it, and as Heather notes, there's, there is data that shows that if you start voting at your first eligible opportunity, then you form the habit and you continue to do so for the rest of your life. And I can say just a personal anecdote. Uh, my mom dragged me literally by the ear uh, to the polling booth the first time when I was 18 uh, to vote, and sure enough, I voted in uh, every election I've had the chance since. So, uh, you know, there's some anecdotal evidence at least that encouraging young people to get going is probably a pretty good idea. 
Just as a follow-up, I must say that I've got some, I, I received some of the nicest letters and little uh, slogans from elementary school children years ago. So I know they are doing that to a degree, but what happens that it drops off? So thank you for that. I wouldn't want to offend anybody that uh, I wasn't the recipient of some <laughs> very, very good educational uh, uh, letters. Thank you. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you both for, for your uh, presentations. Um, the fact that we're here today talking about this uh, seems to me that uh, we're talking about the symptoms, a symptom of an ailing society. If, if we're not able to appreciate the value of democracy sufficiently, of course we won't vote. Well, why, why bother? And uh, uh, I, I think that uh, perhaps uh, we discussed this around our table that maybe affluence has been the, the main problem in, uh, in people becoming lazy uh, and, uh, and not bothering to, to get involved in, in political matters. Uh, politics since ancient times has been a very important part of human life. And uh, here we are in the 21st century, uh, not able to get more than 40% than of our people out to vote. Uh, it's a, a terrible uh, condemnation of our attitudes as a society when we, when we reach that point. So I, I, more of a comment than a question, uh, I would just like to, uh, to uh, thank you for, uh, for talking about this with us because we all have to think about it a great deal more and take it on as a responsibility in our homes as well as in our schools to, to keep talking about the importance of politics in our lives. I'll just make one comment in response to that too, which is, you know, turnout, I think as Heather mentioned, turnout has been dropping in the Western or advanced uh, democracies uh, for, what, 30-plus years, has been dropping pretty steadily, and certainly that's one of the reasons... Uh, usually stated for why that's been the case is people sort of get complacent and start to take it for granted and so on. Uh, and I agree with you. I think that's a b bad thing. And I think, indeed, we should be concerned about that. My name is Frances Schultz. The question that I would like to know is whether there's any research to indicate that you know of why there's a great voter turnout in PEI and a poor voter turnout in Alberta? Uh, well, okay. So after the 2008 election, the provincial government was quite rightly concerned about the turnout, as they should be. And they contracted Leger Marketing to do a poll to find out why people didn't come out to vote. And apparently this is quite common in all kinds of polling post-election. A lot of people have reasons that just relate to busyness, basically. They were too busy. They couldn't make it that day. They planned to get there, but by the time they got there, it was already closed. You know, they, they ended up with a lot to do at the office. I mean, you end up with different excuses that relate to practical notions, but the feeling there is that those people say those publicly to the pollster and people are less likely to give an answer that relates to sort of a deeper values related question of why they chose not to vote. So the
the the research says that despite the fact that so many people give these very practical reasons for not coming to vote, they think that a truer uh, sense of why people don't show up relates to some of the secondary and third-level reasons that they give for not voting. And those would be things like they don't think their vote will make a difference. Um, there is evidence internationally to show that where you have a very large majority system or where the outcome is more um, predictable, that turnout goes down. So where you see this very obviously is in municipal elections. So, for example, you'll, where we have a lot of variation in turnout. So, you know, Edmonton, when they had uh, a mayor who was consistently winning, would get as low as 25% turnout, which is not uncommon. And then as soon as they have a very tight mayoral race, it goes up to 45%, 50%. So you see a very large jump. And in municipally, it tends to be pretty much just the mayoral races being tight that make a big difference in turnout, where the, the councillor-level races don't have as big an impact. But so that just gives us some uh, further evidence to show that where people feel like there's a lot of choice and the outcome is not very certain, they're more likely to come out and vote. I know very little about PEI, but I think their turnout was 84% or something like that. It's astonishing and good for them. Um, but I think in history, uh, in Alberta, rather, you know, history and political culture and certainly incumbency, uh, both in municipal and provincial level, I think has a lot to do with it. Um, and I would think, given, you know, all the sort of political changes that people are sensing right now at the provincial level and the different parties sprouting up and the different options and so on, you know, I would just make, I'm not a betting man, but I would make a prediction that turnout will go up considerably from the 08 election uh, just because people seem to be tuning back in to politics uh, at the provincial level. And, you know, that's, you know, this is obviously a completely nonpartisan point, but whatever the outcome, that's obviously a very good thing. Terry Shillington, thank you very much for both of you for your presentations. Um, as Frances Schultz was asking her question, I was reminded that the voter turnout in provincial elections and federal in Fort McMurray is in, in the 20s. <clears throat> and so I suspect the more cohesive and connected a, a society is, uh, the more people are inclined to vote. And the more chaotic and unstable and transitory a community is, and the more stressed people feel within that culture, the more they turn inward. Uh, <clears throat> I have a hard time supporting... Um, a compulsory voter turnout because, uh, as uh, Van Christu implied, I don't think it's scratching where our culture is really itchy. Uh, I believe that um, there's a couple of things going on that militate against uh, people voting. One is a lack of connectedness. People increasingly don't feel connected to community but are more connected to their TV set or what's going on in their living room. And, and secondly, um, a profound cynicism about institutions of all kinds and sorts uh, that um, is quite cancerous, actually, and, and, um, and um, militates against uh, voting as well. So I don't know what to do about those two. I've spent my life pondering uh, those two trends, but I think they both are the real thing that we need to solve in our culture rather than insisting that, uh, you know, finding people $20 if they don't vote or whatever. Anyway, I, these are wonderings. Maybe I'll just mention Elections Canada has done a fair bit around youth vote and lack of a youth vote. And one of, one of the things that they've pointed to is the notion that, that youth are not voting in a traditional sense, but that does not mean that they're not politically active. You see youth out and involved in social causes, uh, participating in alternative sorts of ways in the organization of society and governance. So it's like a shift in this type of participation. 
And there is some evidence for that. So I'd be reluctant to say too much about the youth not caring or caring less now. It's they've chosen to, to concentrate their efforts in a different way, which I think does reflect some dissatisfaction with institutional democracy for sure. So it's sort of an interesting phenomenon. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm interested in PEI, but, I mean, it's so small. I have a hard time sort of relating to PEI in a way. I'm particularly interested in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan's a lot like us. It's right next door. They had 76% turnout in virtually the same time that we had 40. So that, to me, is, is quite interesting because I would consider our, ourselves in lots of ways relatively similar. But what's a major difference between Saskatchewan and Alberta in terms of provincial politics, they don't have the historical incumbency that we have here. I'll, I'll have a question here, uh, Ian's coming up, uh, about voter apathy and, and ways of voting. Um, what are your comments, both of you, on newer ways of voting, uh, using modern technology, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, some people uh, certainly are keen on the electronic voting, for example. Um, I guess I'd like to see some pilot projects and so on first to see how that would go. You know, I do have some concerns. Some people say, well, if you can do online banking, then why can't you do online voting? It should be just as secure. Uh, I guess there would be questions about the physical security of the networks and so on, but there would also be questions uh, about whether you could have um, pressure and so on. You know, in a private polling booth where you go and stand behind the, the thing and mark your ballot, it is a secret ballot and the, the uh, scrutineers and so on make sure that, that uh, that's done properly. If you have online voting from home and so on, there could be more danger of pressure or of people gathering together groups of people and trying to marshal their votes in a given way. So, I mean, I, I think there are reasons why we have the secret ballot in the polling booth and so on. Uh, I'm in favor in principle, I guess, of of measures, uh, looking at least look, looking at measures to try to get people more likely to vote. But also, you know, one thing a lot of young people say, well, if it was easy, if I could just vote from my smartphone, I would do it for sure. But I can't take, what, two minutes? To, I mean, it literally took me two minutes to vote in the Calgary municipal election. I voted in the advance poll, uh, walked in, dropped in a ballot, and left. If you can't spare two minutes every three years or four or so in a federal election or provincial election, uh, you know, I'm not sure that technology is going to be your savior. The problem might be that you just don't care about voting. So I don't know that we might see a bump, uh, but I don't know that it would be the cure-all. I guess I've got some of the same concerns as Dan does about intimidation of the voter. Um, you know, somebody's at home and their spouse is looking over their shoulder telling them how to vote. Um, but I think those are, are not so significant that we need to then necessarily write it off right off the bat. I mean, the fact that young people are saying, you know what, if I had the chance to e-vote, I would do it, because we see such a lack of participation among uh, the under-35 age group, I think it's worth considering on a pilot basis. And then some of the ideas we were just chatting about at the table that you had, like voting in the mall, for example, uh, voting on campuses, setting up stations there, I think those are, are pretty interesting and pretty encouraging. And we're in a database society where, you know, we don't sort of need paper lists where you have to go to a station that's very close to your house. We have electronic um, system of tracking voters in the registry. We should be able to let people vote wherever is most convenient for them. I think that's, a, that's an interesting idea to look at. 
So I would just pick up on that and say, absolutely. I mean, in Calgary, there was that issue uh, that you couldn't vote on campus. You had to go back to your home riding. And, of course, if you live an hour away in a suburb, that's very difficult to do. I would absolutely be in favor of having roving polling stations whereby you could vote for your your own riding from wherever uh, or at least from certain uh, preordained locations. Absolutely, that would help. Hi, Ian McKenna. Um, the problem I have is that when I look at elections and I say, well, what are the, what are the parties, the political parties doing? Who, who are they working for? And I'm finding it's not just the regular guy or woman. It's the rich. That's what we got. You know, we, so you look at the United States, they've got two parties there. And the corporations fund both. <laughs> so you have a system that, uh, you know, the corporations can't lose, you know, whether it's Democrat. And Canada is starting to move uh, very, very much toward that. It's about, uh, you know, when you see the, 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 the latest stuff um, about taxation and so on, the government trying to, you know, to, to make tax easier for the rich. And so as one of the poor, which I consider myself to be, um, why would I bother? Uh, just let them get on with it. Uh, and I think that's sort of the message that uh, the non-voters are giving you, that uh, this is not our, our government. It's not for us. It's not for the people. And as long as we have that, I think all the great ideas that, uh, that people have been giving here aren't going to be worth very much. I just, if you've got a, a view on that. Okay. A couple of points. I think we have significantly better campaign finance limits than does the U.S., and I think that matters. And I want to mention that the federal government in 06 brought in campaign election finance reform that was really significant federally. No corporate donations, no union donations. That matters in terms of the kinds of concerns that you're raising. And I'd like to see that expanded, and I'd like to see more of that at provincial municipal level, to be frank. That said, we still have the risk, when only 40% are voting, that the parties will favor those who are supporting them, either financially supporting them or voting for them. So without a combo of finance reform and a broader electoral participation, we are at risk of governing in favor of certain segments of the population where we're seeing tends to be more elite. The wealthier predominantly come out to vote more than the poorer in our society. And so there is that risk there, and that is one of the arguments that's made in favor of compulsory voting and the social bias, because, you know, the, it's, it's, there is a built-in sort of incentive for parties to cater to their voting base, and so it's problematic in that, way, in that respect. This will be our last question, and we'll have Gordon wrap up. Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Stan Knowlton. Well, thanks. First of all, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you on your forty percent uh, turnout at your elections. In Native community, we usually get around three percent, so I think you're doing quite well. So, if you uh, look back at our situation, uh, it was uh, you know illegal up until six nineteen sixty two for us to vote, and most people didn't even know it was lifted until. 1967. So those are some of the situations we run into. Now, uh, as a candidate in the uh, last couple of federal elections, you know, I did have a, 
opportunity to go out and talk to many people. And uh, what I find out is that a lot of people don't look at their, uh, the, you know, their non-vote as uh, simply not being there. So the 60% is telling you something, you know, and it's telling you that we're not satisfied, you know, with what's coming out. And in, my, in a lot of ways, that's my vote. I was told literally, you know, by a lot of my own people, that's not my system. And that's just the way they felt. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to say that the the 60% who don't turn out, maybe not all of them, we can't sort of impute motives to them, but certainly lots of them would be sending a message that they're not interested, they're disengaged, or they don't care, or whatever. And, and I think that's why we uh, should be so concerned about this. But, you know, I guess that was one of my arguments as to why we shouldn't have compulsory voting, because you might mask that fact. You might mask that, that deep disaffection or, or, or uh, disengagement that is out there and that I think a lot of you are putting your finger on in different ways. Uh, and the other thing, just to pick up on the, your last point and the other uh, fellow's point before about sort of why, why should people care, I mean, I think a lot of people feel disengaged or removed from the process or they feel, you know, they're all creeps and bums and they don't do anything for us, you know, they all lie and so on about politicians. Um, and far be it for me to sound Pollyannish, anyone who knows me, I'm usually the grump, but I mean, it's self-defeating, I think, for people to say, well, it doesn't work or I can't have any effect or whatever. I mean, the best way to have an effect is to get out and take 10 of your friends and get out and join a party or start a party or get out and vote and get involved in those ways. Um, I think that's sort of the best antidote to to the disengagement that, that people here are sensing. And I think I'd finish just by saying, for this group that really cares about these things and is, is engaged in elections, take your kids and grandkids to the polls with you. Be like Dan's mom and sort of drag them along, and we'll see if we can't have a movement among our core voting population that way to really get some of the younger voters out. Dr. Campbell, could you come up maybe and summarize and for us? Good afternoon. I have a sheaf of notes here, and none of them can I use. Everything has been said and said better than I could say it but I can reinforce some of the things that have been said. Uh, but first of all, can I explain that in the, in the flyer that was put out, uh, I was listed as a speaker. Uh, I'm not a speaker on this issue. I'm not, I'm not informed at all. I, I am a, to be a listener. But chiefly, I think the planning committee wanted me to see if there was some way in which I might be able to find a, a synthesis of opinion between the black and the white and the, and the mean in this audience, as a, as a representative audience of uh, Southern Alberta, is there some way that we might be able to do that? But be, before I do that, I want to say also thank you to come down. Uh, the idea for this uh, gathering and the topic and the preparatory information was provided by the Schumer Foundation, and the idea was initiated by them, and we're grateful for their wanting to reach out cooperatively with us. And while I'm in this happy mood, I want to say to the Council of Public Affairs Executive, of which I'm not a member, and Knut especially, 
Such remarkable things are happening in this town. By reason of the Council of Public Affairs, there are three things happening that I know of this weekend. Last night, there was a fine meeting of the newly hatched, about to be hatched, political party to be called the Alberta Party, a fine meeting, I thought. And uh, there is this fine meeting, too, not by any contribution of mine, but yours entirely. And uh, this is going to be repeated again in the afternoon. And is there something else happening this weekend, Knut, that I'm not aware of in the Council of Public Affairs? <laughs> I'm sorry? <laughs> so anyway, a lot of things are happening, and they're happening because we're, we're engaged somehow. You're engaged and, and come out to this, to this meeting today. Uh, I've been asked to, as a, the only direction I got as to what my role ought to be in the last five minutes only, was to say, let's find a, a point of agreement. And one of the ways one can find a point of agreement is to simply show your hands. So as a, we've never done this, typically, because we didn't think that's our duty. But it isn't our duty. It's a, an opportunity now to say in voting, would you prefer the voting system to be changed to be representative of, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the position taken by our speaker, our first speaker, on on uh, on voting mandatory mandatory voting are you i'll ask three questions are you interested in mandatory voting are you not interested in changing to mandatory voting or have you have got other something else so the first question are you interested in changing our system to mandatory voting will you put your hands up oh my one two three four five six seven ten or something eight those who are not interested in changing the mandatory system no change by far, unanimous. And, and finally, those who don't put their hands up for anything have got other views, others. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How do you figure that out? And, and uh, oh my gosh, uh, I was also asked to, to ask you, who has changed their mind as a result of today's presentation? It's been exciting, it's been interesting, but who, who has had another, who's had a shift in their thinking? Put your hands up. Who have? Oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Only ten, twelve. For others, it was underlining what you already knew. It was something like that, or a rehash of old thinking or new thinking about to come about. Pardon? Much of much can be learned by hearing it again. <laughs> so I have to go. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I have to do what the law requires. The Council of Public Affairs, shut up! <laughs>